Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report for Friday the 15th of October 2021. Dom Knight and Charles Firth with you once again with our final Freedom Week episode of long interviews with interesting people. Today it is Saul Griffith, one of the world's leading experts in getting rid of carbon by electrifying everything. He's got lots of ideas, practical ideas, about how we can stop burning coal and all that kind of stuff and instead transform the whole way that energy works in our country. And here's the thing, he's actually really confident about how practical it is. Yes, that's right. And he was born in Wollongong in New South Wales and he's sort of paved his way around the world. He's he's got this extraordinary career, but he's now come back to Australia with, with a single mission, which is to basically save the planet. And he's got a really good idea on how that can be done. Yes, I mean, he's worked with the Biden administration. Certainly the Australian government talked to him all the time. I mean, you might think they never talked to anyone who wants to fix climate change, but Saul Griffith, they do actually talk to. He's got a new book out about how this all works. The book is called Electrify, an Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Future. Although I think probably a lot of the key points are going to be covered in the next hour or so, Charles, but buy the book anyway. (laughs) Yes. That's all coming up right after Rebecca Dana Muno brings you the latest Chaser News headlines. Massive shortages have hit Britain's supply chain with concerns mounting that the country will run out of food and fuel by Christmas. But officials say they can't blame it on Brexit, mainly because they've entirely run out of things to blame. Canberra is on track to become the most vaccinated city in the world, still in lockdown. But experts say it's unclear whether the city is in fact in lockdown or it's just that there's nothing to do there. Scott Morrison has revealed why Australia is sending a rover to the moon. The Prime Minister said that he needed somewhere to lie low next time a crisis hits Australia. That's the latest Chaser news you can't trust. Remember to like and subscribe to this podcast in your app of choice. I'm Rebecca Dayanamuno, and I'm really looking forward to kicking back, relaxing, and hearing all about the impending global apocalypse over the next hour or so. Mm, cheery stuff. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. I see from the cover of your book, Electrify, that you're an optimist about our clean energy future. And, I mean, I can see why people will pick this book up in bookshops, because how can you be optimistic about our clean energy future? (laughs) Do we have one? I don't know how to say this. Um, I may as well tell the truth. It's it's a novel thing, I think, in in contemporary life. I argued against the publisher about that word. I said, no, I said, no, you can't, you can be like, you know, I can find the tiny bits of optimism amongst a sea of holy cow. Um, but that they couldn't fit those, all those words into the space. So they didn't know with <laughs> but I, anyway, so that's, that's the joke, but I think there is reason for some optimism compared to where we were five years ago. Why? 
Like what? What's changed? Uh, I think the, the reality is our scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs have kind of done their work, and they've created roughly the set of technologies that we need. That if we had political gumption to match, we could slide in at around one and a half, definitely under two degrees. Oh. So the optimism is we still have a chance. It does mean that we've got to go hell for leather and we've got to change the nature of politics and we need to have a mass mobilization of the people like we haven't seen since World War II. So it's not to say it's easy, but I still have some optimism because I could now, in a short period of time, and maybe that's what you'll do to me on this show, narrate why we have all the things we need to get the job done and we can do it well in advance of 2050. I think I'm definitely up for hearing about that. Um, particularly if it's one and a half, if one and a half degrees. I have yet to hear that that's really viable. I thought sort of two was pretty much locked in at this point. So that is a relief. One and a half is heroic for sure. So I think uh, more pragmatic people would say because there are countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and Russia that have no intention of joining your mass global mobilization two degrees is the best we can hope for right okay mm. but uh in in the climate world there's a concept called committed emissions if you bought a ute last year it will over the 20 years that it lives em- emit co2 because you're burning petrol in it if you bought a gas heater for your home last year it will emit for roughly 15 years until it breaks if you bought a coal plant in China last year, it'll live for about 50 years, etc. If you let all of the machines that are already born and exist on the planet today live out their natural lives, that'll give us about 1.8 degrees. Right. So, so, so the trick is to just stop making new commitments. <laughs> yes. From, yeah, so just stop phobic, buying gas heaters from now on. And I, I, I like to think about it this way <laughs> because I think this is, um, and I don't want people to misinterpret it. it doesn't, now, this doesn't mean we need to go out tomorrow and put an axe through the bonnet of our two petrol-powered cars and disconnect the heater and use candles. Um that all actually, things that would actually be very fun. and All would be very fun. <laughs> yeah. that, that revenge fantasy version of climate <laughs> success would give us about 1.1 degrees. Right, yes. That we'd all probably wake up at the end of the weekend feeling a little cold and a little over it. <laughs> um, my wife, it's not even the third cold shower that gets her. It's actually the first one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's anyway, 1.8 degrees is about as good as you can do. The, this is why you hear people advocate for early retirement of coal. Mm. Because if you take out the heaviest emitting big machines first, that can bring you 1.7, 1.6. And then this is obviously why there's a huge amount of discussion about negative emissions. Now... So would you say that Australia's um, Environment Minister approving... three new coal projects in the last month would you say helping or not helping i'm not sure how i would describe my feelings for that person but the young agitated activist version of me would certainly have fun with his front lawn and his doorstep um like this is not on at this point um we should be stopping it 
Now, you could have a more nuanced conversation about how do you slowly transition Australia's industry because certainly I, I do have some sympathy. My, you know, two or three great-grandfathers ago, we started, my family started the coking industry in Wollongong. So, and, you know, my first job was on the rolling mill next to the blast furnace in Newcastle. So I appreciate the cultural challenges for a whole lot of people who've worked hard in coal and steel and these industries that when they hear turn it off, they hear their job goes away tomorrow. That's not actually how it happens, right? So the average furnace lasts 15 years, the average water heater lasts 12 years, the average car lasts 20 years. So as long as we just make sure that the next time you go to buy all of these things, we put in the electric option and then we retire every coal plant and natural gas plant at the end of its life or you know for extra credit bring it forward and retire them a little bit early that's super good news that's the recipe for australia the problem is that we supply huge amounts of coal to southeast asia india china and others um, and that's why we're approving those mines because we i think we can squint and see the domestic solution but there's still some greedy little eyes that want to make sure that we're going to enable other people to ruin our children's future. So it won't be our fault. It'll be other people's fault. But that's sort of a... At the end of the day, a lot of these things come down to the tricks we played with the IPCC on whose emissions count where on the ledger. Mm. And Australia is is responsible for roughly 1% of global emissions, but 4% if you include the LNG, the natural gas and the coal that we export that's burned elsewhere... And one percent is already per capita puts us as the the most the highest emitter, doesn't it? No, no. I mean, you know, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, <laughs> Canadians, Americans—they're just slightly worse than us, but mostly because their climates aren't as lovely and mild. So it's not like we're better people. We just got we just got blessed with a better <laughs> better we- better weather. I suppose because you so you mentioned you started in Wollongong, but you've been over in America for a number of years, haven't you? What have you been doing over there? I bought a one way ticket to America when I was nineteen to my mother's great dismay, um, and the first six months in America was just hitchhiking around Alaska, which was fun. Um, but then I. And why yeah. did you go? Was it to not have to work wow. at the furnace? <laughs> no, I was studying metal. <laughs> I suppose after I had, furnace, I was, going to Alaska I just finished working on the, the, the steel mill in Newcastle, and I was looking. I was struggling to motivate to finish my degree in metallurgy at University of New South Wales. So I got myself an exchange program to go and do a year at Berkeley. But because their academic year is six months off ours, I got to have a holiday. So I went and worked on a fishing trawler and drove a couple of trucks and fought some fires in the far north of Alaska. Uh, Then I went to Berkeley. Uh, Then I traveled the world for a while. Ultimately, I went back to America to do my PhD at MIT, um, which was really an incredible experience. Then I finished that in 2004, went to Silicon Valley and started starting companies. Um, Nearly all the companies I've started have been in energy or in robotics, and I've done well enough that I can actually spend a lot of my time now fighting for good without having to sweat the paycheck. Um, so I'm very blessed mm. because as I've learned both in America and in Australia in the last two years, policy is made by the people who can afford to show up. So the fossil fuel industry shows up, poor broke people show up, 
and I, I can show up now and influence policy. And so that's, uh, that feels like a good way for me to give back. So you said that we have the tools that we need to sort this stuff out. And my completely just, you know, vague impression is that we have been getting to the point where um, even if political will is not there, it's become so cheap to go renewable in some situations that um, the profit motive is, is, is helping with this. But I'm excited to hear that um, we have what we need in terms of technology evolution. What is that stuff? So we don't have everything we need for every single segment of the economy. But what we do have right now, like you say, is starting to work. And, and this is a lot of the work we're doing with. I started an organization last year called Rewiring America. This year, this week, in fact, started an organization called Rewiring Australia. And that is to show that decarbonizing our households and or our castles and our cars, you might say, um, and our small businesses is now really close to within reach in a bunch of countries. Um, when I'm in the US, for example, I'll be addressing senators there and I'll say, if you could invent a country that had Australian rooftop solar policy, Norwegian or Californian electric vehicle policy, and South Korean, German heat pump building heat policy, you'd have the ideal country where the economics all works. That's because in Australia, we did really clever things about a decade ago that deregulated the, made the soft costs go out of our solar for, because of clever regulations. And um, so we have the cheapest electricity delivered anywhere in the world is Australian rooftop solar used in your house. Um, the California electric vehicle policy is to underwrite and subsidize the market until those vehicles get to cost parity and we're really close. So Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they're not a terribly, lib you know, they're money focused organization. They believe that at the showroom, you'll pay the same amount for an electric car that you would for the equivalent fossil fuel car in about 2025. Wow, that's um, certainly mm. not the way things work here. <laughs> no, but that could be happening here. Um, I mean, it still costs you about $10,000 or more today. If you go and buy a Hyundai Kona with a petrol engine in the US, it's about forty grand. And if you go and buy the Hyundai Kona with the electric, it's about fifty-two or fifty-five. So right now it's a little bit more, but that's coming down really quick. And then people who own electric cars know that once you own it, it's one or two cents a kilometer to drive it instead of 15 or 20 cents to drive your Ford Ranger. So mm. as long as we can help people get over that front slug for a few years, the, 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 the CapEx, um, you'll be all right. Or as I like to say it now, it's like, if you can afford to buy a Mercedes today, you can afford to completely decarbonize your driving. You're just very consciously choosing to buy a Mercedes instead of a Hyundai right? An electric Hyundai. Mm. If you can only afford to buy a Toyota Camry today, then there isn't an electric car that's you're going to be able to afford in the showroom. So there's still, that's, that's why California and Norway have good EV policy because they're helping the early adopters get over that upfront slug with, you know, in California, it's a $7,000 rebate. And um, Australia would do well to have policy that looks like that. Mm. But once you get all of those things in place, if you could, if you could have that country that's 
uh, Australia, Korea, Fornia. By about 2025, every Australian household will be saving a thousand bucks a year, and by the end of the decade, 2030, every Australian household will be saving five or six thousand dollars a year compared to what they paid a day. Now, that's not you're going to be in a smaller home and have smaller cars, and the you know you're going to shrink everything and ride the bus and become vegan narrative. That's the we'll give you the same size car, it'll be electric, same sized home, same suburb. It'll be heated with heat pumps and electricity, solar on the roof, and you'll be able to recognise those savings. Isn't there a sort of problem, though, in Australia, which is that every time, say, at the last election, Labor Party rolled out a policy to try and get people to buy EVs, some EV subsidy, and suddenly there was this massive scare campaign um, from the coalition saying they're going to... They're going to steal your ute. They're going to ruin the weekend, um, you know. And and suddenly the whole, not just um, not just the coalition, but the Murdoch press came in with a full court press, basically scaring everyone that you know the plan to subsidise. And 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 also there was a sort of class war edge, which was, well, this is fine for the inner city latte sippers who want their Teslas. But you know what is it? it was a real politics of envy thing going on, and and so the idea immediately died. Like it, it sort of there's there's this the political conversation in this country seems to be so broken that I'm not sure this sort of like how do you get around that problem? I, I think we just got to absolutely own the culture wars. So um, this is <laughs> this is my new project. Um, I don't know whether to bet you that it'll happen in 2022 or 2023, but I'm going to win summer nats in a home-built electric hot rod. Wow. All right, that is a huge goal. And I'm just going to throw it down and say, like, the reality is now, um, I'm owning, my wife and I now have our fourth electric car. And we we drove all of those four electric cars way more than we drove the other four cars that I own, which are basically hot rod muscle cars. You see, what's not, you know, I may be an environmentalist, but I'm also a motorhead. Mm. And I have a 59 Volkswagen dune buggy with a Porsche engine in it. And I have a 61 Lincoln Continental, which is like definitive American muscle. It weighs about seven tons. Uh, 63 Land Rover and an obscure uh, 600cc Fiat bus from the 90s also from the 1950s mm. so i love cars and i can appreciate that people will want some of that car thing <laughs> in their future and um a couple of years ago you couldn't tell a story that it was going to be okay can you do a donut can you do a burnout in an electric car though oh my god i have <laughs> i have a two-wheel drive electric motorcycle i build and i can do a two-wheel drive burnout in my electric motorcycle I've built a 16-wheel drive electric car that has about 160 horsepower. It's actually a go-kart with 16 wheels for reasons. That may be a 64-wheeled version of that might be what I win Summer Nats with. What about a monster truck? You- if you turn up to Summer Nats in an electric monster truck, I think you'll just win. You can crush all of the petrol power cars. <laughs> Summer Nats, I thought, was a little bit nostalgic. I mean, I, there's no monster trucks in Australian nostalgia. I think maybe if you showed up in an FJ40 Cruiser with... <laughs> electric and and you know then you'd be in in the right game but, but this is sort of like, i don't know whether this is going to work though because <laughs> okay so you got the sort of hoons I, I still don't see how you stop it 
being subject to some sort of scare campaign because because it's not that you know Aussies love their hot rods. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is that you know actually, frankly, a lot of the coalition is captured by these. They're carbon interests. captured, is what they are. At their carbon captured, and and they will go to the wall. They'll try anything to um, to try and to try and slow the the electrification of Australia. They're absolutely going to go to the wall, and they're going to try and beat us on everything. They're going to try and beat us with their barbecues. They're going to try and beat us on jet skis, on cars, on motorbikes, and all the things. Yeah, they're, they're trying to steal your gas barbecue. You know, next. You know, right. The, the, so. I think, again, we just got to own that. Saul Griffith is trying to steal your lump of coal that you've had, you know, that you take to bed each night and sleep with. I'd love to imagine Angus Taylor going to sleep, tucking in next to his big lump of coal. And I've heard he does. He does. <laughs> in the 1970s, none of these things were partisan issues. And, in fact, when the first energy crisis hit the US, it was on Richard Nixon's watch. And it was the oil, Arab oil embargo, and America was short 15% of its energy and there was no Department of Energy, so Nixon invented one. They studied what was wrong with the problem, and they realized that they should make cars more efficient by 15%, and they should make appliances more efficient by 15%, and that would be enough to solve that problem. And that gave us a traditional energy policy as we now understand it. More efficient car mm. policy, which drives the world... You know, America's cafe fuel standards drive the world's vehicle standards. And it gave us Energy Star appliances, and you see the little label when you go to the... Harvey Norman, that's where those two things came from. So we've only had an efficiency narrative around solving our energy problems for 50 years, and efficiency rhymes to people with somebody taking away your truck or making you live in a colder, smaller house or something like that. The amazing thing about electrifying our stuff is an electric monster truck doing exactly the same things as a petrol-powered monster truck does it using one-third of the energy, right? Mm. It might, it'll cost you 80 cents to have an eight-minute luxurious natural gas-powered shower, but because if you do that with an electric heat pump, it'll only use one-third of the energy. If you're powering that off your rooftop solar, that'll only cost you 10 cents. So the efficiency, you know, and if you, if you use a coal-powered plant to make electricity, mm. um, three-quarters of the energy is wasted. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is we've had a denialist efficiency narrative for 50 years mm. and no one's ever dared to have an abundance narrative. So let me give you an abundance narrative of this electrified future, right? The electric Ford F-150, which is even bigger yeah. and more handsome than your small Australian tiny Ford Ranger, will go on sale next year for $40,000 and it'll be all electric and it'll have about a four or 500 kilometer range, right? And so the weekend's now still within reach. The car has more room and it, it can get the job done. Uh, $40,000. And that comes with a 100 kilowatt hour battery in it. So today, if in Australia, you're buying a battery for the side of your house, you're paying about $1,200 a kilowatt hour. Think about that Ford truck as a $400 per kilowatt hour battery with a free SUV. <laughs> right? Mm. That's coming. That's going to completely change the climate debate. And we need to be anticipating that now in Australia so that we can have enough vehicle charges and et cetera to make all of that work. Think about it this way. If you want an abundance narrative, we'll have, we'll, instead of designing our soul to just barely, you know, we've, the, the rules by which we 
and uh, encourage solar on rooftops is only generate enough to cover the loads that you use on an average day. Never ever really dare to think. Cover your whole roof and a bit of your yard too so that you get way, way more electricity, in which case you could power both your cars, your whole household, all your heating, and you may as well put a jet ski in the front yard because a jet ski needs about a 100 kilowatt hour battery to have the same full throttle one hour experience you get with the existing one. And so your jet ski then becomes your house backup battery. You spend $30,000 on this jet ski. Your wife now approves of it because you're saving your children and you're backing up the house. And this is a grid connected asset. Probably estate premiers should be competing with each other to give rebates and discounts and incentives for people to convert their two-stroke jet skis to electric jet skis so that we're actually using these things as grid assets to balance our wind and our solar. You, I see you laugh. Unfortunately, the audience isn't hearing you laugh, but this is not an impossible future. And Australia is one of the countries that's lucky enough that has enough abundance of these resources that we could live in that world. Now, the environmentalist me doesn't exactly love this narrative because, you know, we could solve climate change and still choke the oceans with microplastics. But it's to say we don't have to have the doom and gloom anymore. The technologies and the costs are here where we could be saving money and we could even be over-investing in our toys. And both of those activities are aligned with eliminating carbon from our domestic lives. But it makes sense that electing people hasn't worked really in the decades that it's been happening. Selling them on a sexy vision of giving them the things that they want in a better version, regardless of how it's powered, I can see how that makes sense and it's I mean I'm sold, but how do you make that narrative a mass narrative? How do you put it out there in abundance so that people who don't already agree with you change their minds and want to go electric? You show up some of that and you Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Data. I, I actually think... Um, what the world really needs, and this is what I'm trying to do in rewiring America, maybe this is what rewiring Australia will become, but you need a centrist climate movement. Um, you need a plurality of the people in the middle, not at neither extreme, who want to do this for sensible reasons. And I really think that means we need, you know, the middle class mums and dads and the middle class grandmas and grandpas to be like, oh yeah, I can actually totally see why now the economics is near enough that I don't have to feel bad about doing this and it's for my children and my or my grandchildren's future. And I'm not going to have to deny myself so many of the things that I'm going to feel uncomfortable. So now I, I'm, I'm going to feel comfortable enough to vote for a centrist climate politician. Isn't there a problem with that though? Because, you know, consistently the polls in Australia have shown that 70, 75, 80% of people support more action on climate change, right? Like that, that is the poll. And that has been the polls now for at least five or six years. So you'd think that there's a sort of centrist position there. 
but no one, but but the parties don't deliver them. No, like there's neither, no neither, party. neither party has a climate platform that they are going to be comfortable. That you know, we we don't have an Australian. In fact, honestly, there's there's not a government in the world that you can point out that has a satisfactory climate policy. Because they're trying to balance all the things the governments have to balance. And, and I think, sadly, we're in an era where governments are run by polls, not by leadership. Right? So they're but also, responding. aren't they run by interests? Isn't, isn't absolutely, the whole problem? they're run by interests. And so we've, yeah. and you know, absolutely, we have to organize against these interests. I've just stared down the American natural gas industry for the last three months while trying to fight for centrist climate policy in the US. And they, they're, you know, the evil people, it's, it's coal and oil aren't even at the debate anymore. It's all natural gas. And they're still telling all the bridge fuel bullshit stories. Um, mm. And we just, you know, we just got to get in there. But there's there's no money on the other side. There's not enough of a coalition to fight. So we were outspent thousands of dollars to one by these lobbying interests in the US. And... From what I can see, Australia is exactly the same. Well, the problem we have here too is the nationals. I mean, the nationals get, I think, four and a half percent of the primary vote at a federal election, but because they're part of the coalition and can set the terms of the coalition agreement, which is secret, they have a veto over energy policy, and they've had for a long time. So even though some in in the Liberal Party, and certainly we see that in New South Wales, actually want to at least move somewhat on this, and business is telling them that they should. While you've got a party that is basically in, in cahoots with the Gina Reinhardt's of this world, how do we change that? I don't know. Our political system seems uniquely um, designed to stop us achieving reform in this area. I, I think this changes with storytellers, and I think you guys... It's up to us. We're going to save the world. Are, are, <laughs> I, I, no, 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 absolutely. Seriously, I'm going to push it on you. You're trying to drive me to a place where I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to drive you guys... I actually think we are failing on the political narrative. I actually believe that the people who want the change are not having deep enough empathy for the interests of, for example, the nationals. As a kid, I was lucky enough to spend a hell of a lot of summers on a sheep farm dagging lambs and um, castrating them. Not terribly pleasant when you're a 10-year-old boy to castrate a few hundred lambs in an afternoon, but that was you know, what you do. And I developed a deep appreciation for how difficult the rural life is. I also worked in the Australian steel industry and recognized that, you know, a huge amount of our prosperity comes from our metals industries. And so I think if you can have some empathy for those things being the lived and real experience of a lot of Australians, you can have some empathy that a political representative that's elected to represent them is going to be resistive to policies that make it sound like that's going to go away. We've made farming harder, not easier, in the four decades since I was a kid. And it's not entirely unreasonable. You know, what's really Barnaby Joyce asking for? He wants a farm subsidy because it's pretty darn hard life and we don't pay enough for our meat and we don't pay enough for our vegetables in the cities. And so, you know, if they have to package that through a you know, very cynical climate uh, policy... Mm then maybe that's it. Well, I, mean, I, 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 I disagree with you there. I, I don't think... I think the National Party is a mining party dressed up as farmers. They, they cosplay their farming. <laughs> but I also, hear, I also hear you've got the skill set to castrate Barnaby Joyce, which I think could be in the national interest, but that's another thing. I, I think 
the you, I think you're right. The Nationals are certainly skewing more mining now than they they ever did, um, and they are huge interests. And in, you know, Clive Palmer outspent everyone on the environmentalist left mm. in the last election, uh, trying to swing the election in favor of what he wants to do. So, without doubt, you can pin the tail on that donkey, and they are complicit. And but I'm not. I think we should go after and try to figure out how to redress the power of the, the, the small number of individuals at the top. But I thought we were just, you, we shouldn't be flip-flopping between the cultural conversation, which is all the people who are struggling to earn their money mm. in those industries versus the very cynical people at the top of those yeah. uh, Ponzi schemes yeah, who are it, shifting the climate politics. It makes sense you've got to bring these people with us. And and from what you're saying, it's potential, it's possible to construct an argument to make things better. I mean, I'm sure that if you can, if your electric vehicles can go out on the farm and you can power and, and you know, cut all the petrol costs for tractors and things, maybe that's part of the story too. I don't know. And in, and in some ways, it's an easy battle because actually the narrative on the other side, oh, no, no, we can save the coal industry. No, no, we can save the gas industry is a is a false narrative and it's selling out those constituents Absolutely. it's you know like you're telling people in the upper hunter no no this coal community can last for 30 years i don't know anyone from the upper hunter who actually believes that when you talk to them they know that they're being sold at false and agl themselves are going no nah, this is not we don't want to do this anymore this is that's better guys that's more of the storytelling yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah <laughs> No, it's just who who does who tells this story? How do we get the will inside inside Parliament? So Matt Keane, as we know from talking to him a few weeks ago, is a, is a fan of this stuff. Yeah, who who are the allies? I think there's a huge number of allies that are working in state politics. You could take the if you took you know the demand response programs being run in Queensland because they have so much solar that they're now trying to figure out how to put it into your swimming pool and your hot water heater. If you took the ACT's electric vehicle rebates and incentives if you took um some of victoria's programs to to underwrite or rebate the purchase of electric appliances to go with your solar if we took south australia's um you know battery policy solar policies you add up all the state's policies and you have pretty much a comprehensive policy that doesn't that looks exactly like what I've just basically been advocating for. So we're doing it in pieces, but we're not doing all of it in one place. And we have no federal support for the good work being done at the state level. Now, the federal government will say some like, well, it's a free market and we shouldn't, and the states have their own power, so we shouldn't interfere kind of bullshit line, which is absolutely visionless and leaderless. But what they could be doing is saying, you know, Ambrosio, Keane, Others are doing the right things. We're going to be, we're going to unite the AEMO policy so that all of the grids play nicely with this vision for the future. We're going to sponsor a program similar, you know, in, internationally, Australia's rooftop solar is known as the Australian Solar Miracle. And part of the genius was of it was that we ran a certification and training program that built capacity. So it trained the tradies on how to install it, but it also certified them to inspect it and, uh, and and grease the skids so the permit process. So they eliminated all of the soft costs, which is very important and why it's so cheap. We should be doing the same thing for electric vehicles. Let's train all the tradies to install all the electric vehicle 
infrastructure we need. Let's train all the tradies to install all of these heat pumps we need for water heat and space heat. Let's train all the tradies to tie all this together and put batteries in your barbecue and batteries in your jet ski and wire it up to the grid. Um, and in you know those policies is roughly all you need from the federal government as long as and, and, and accompanied by a commitment to help finance these things so that every Australian household can afford it. Because you're not going to solve climate change if only the top 50% of households can afford these toys. We need to make sure that every household can. And if we don't make sure every household can, this is going to as sure as hell become the political wedge issue. They're going to be like, ah, oh, it's for those toffers in their Teslas in Turak. We, we really need to think carefully about how you make sure low-income multifamily housing units and these other more difficult you know, the story for the single-family suburban home is pretty easy. The story for everyone gets a little bit harder. We, we, uh, we have perfected mm. the narrative of what we have to lose on climate change. One of the arguments is our fantastic fossil export industries. Well, we, only, we export about $60 billion in coal. We export about $15 billion in LNG. And we import about $32 billion in oil and petrol and diesel. But... That's not really a fair way of looking at it, is it? Because on your exports, you have to spend a lot of money to find, mine and make and refine and transport them. So your profit margins are far less than 50%. If you look at the accounting and do the best guess accounting you can without actually getting into Gina Reinhardt's um, books, we lose money net-net on fossil fuels in Australia. We spend more buying our petrol and our diesel than we do in all the profits we make on all of our fossil fuels. Do we really? Microphone drop, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. We're, defending yeah. these, we're defending these industries that are ruining our water tables and suffocating our children and destroying the future just so we can drive the utes. You're including the, 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 the amount that we all pay in retail petrol purchases, are you, in that analysis? Yeah. That's the money we pay in retail yeah, yeah, petrol yeah. purposes. That's, that's right. I can actually, I, I can't believe that. So, okay, Saul, so, so we put you in charge of Australia's energy policy. Let's say you had unfettered um, control of what to do. What's the roadmap? What's your game plan? Other than, other than making a, an electric ATV export industry, which I think would probably earn us $60 billion. <laughs> yeah, and, and a jet ski for all, not just the rich, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I actually was on a phone call with Lily D'Ambrosio from, I probably said her name right, wrong, the, the, from Victoria. She's fabulous. And we got into a little bit of a, it was getting a bit dull because it's one of these endless Zoom meetings. So I decided to spice it up. I was like, you know what? We should have the Lily D'Ambrosio electric induction barbecue for demand response of 2021 act. <laughs> and imagine how popular you will be if you give every Victorian home an electric induction barbecue, which heats up quicker, doesn't make your snags taste like fossil fuels, cleans more easily, etc. And by the way, can also be part of the national grid battery to balance our solar and wind, <laughs> right? Your barbecue can be a battery. Now, now, now we're, we're talking. talking. Your barbecue can be your battery. Your now we're cooking without gas. And so they'll, they'll be earning you money while you're not using them. Like, uh, so that's, you know, there's, there's, there's my, there's, there's my federal climate yeah, platform right there. Well, Barbecues and jet but, skis for all, but, but is which it- is very Bernie Sanders mm. sort of ish, but no, winding, winding back from that, you, I think your question is, it, is good. Isn't your point though, that, that there's sort of, we, we are probably the most abundant nation 
in the world when it comes to energy in terms of the amount of sunlight oh and, and wind. We have everything. Yeah. Not only we, do we have every energy, but, we have every metal but, and we have them in bucket loads. But this is the... This, train loads. This is like... Because oh, I reckon Australia's at the point where we sort of are looking at D- Donald Horn, whose whole point was Australia's the lucky country because we have this abundance and... Um, we have the most incompetent, mediocre leaders leading us through, and but they still succeed because we're, we have such an abundant country. And we're sort of going, have we got to the end of this? Like, we're sort of looking, oh, if we're not allowed to export our coal and our gas, we're not the lucky country anymore. But actually, it turns out that the next step is to harness sunlight. Well, it's like we're the sunburnt country for fuck's sake. Oh, my God. Yes, we have in our national poetry is embedded all, you know, it's the weather, it's the wind, it's yeah. the storm, it's the sun, yeah. it's the flooding rains, it's the pumped hydro. Like, our nat- you know, Dorothy McKellar basically should run our energy policy. Mm. Yeah, right? it's all right there in a, in our sunburnt country, and and that's that's going to be the thing that makes up for not having coal, isn't it? Like, isn't the point that okay? What does the world need to get from here to decarbonize? They're going to need a lot of silicon. Mm. They're going to need an awful lot of steel for all those wind turbines. They're mm. going to need a lot of oh, copper because electric things mm. like copper. Mm. They're going to need a lot of aluminum because ele- the, the transmission lines like to be aluminum, and a whole bunch of other things like to be aluminum. And then they're going to need a bunch of other things. We have like nickel and cobalt and all these things. And you know what? Some countries aren't going to be able to do it on renewables. They're going to need nuclear. Guess who makes most of the world's uranium? <laughs> like on ding, 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 ding. Australia is in the top five producers of all of the things that the future needs. But right now, let's get everyone in the country humming this all the way to the polls, whether it's called in November or whether it's called in March. And be like, oh, let's focus on some people who actually want to make the future nice and, and, and help. Here's roughly the layout. We are the first country in the world that is going to break even on the economics for every household and every small business in a package that is solar on your roof, electric vehicles in your garage, electric heating systems for your water and your space heat, and throw in a battery in an electric kitchen as well. And that Lily D'Ambrosio electric barbecue that the government's going to gift you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, all, all we need is... The, Bunnings to go uh, electric, and I mean, yeah, that's but probably and there's nothing it. wrong with mm-hmm. that being true. If we can get electric Barbies at Bunnings, <laughs> I know. game over. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not. We're not even. We're not being satirical. It's genuinely a good idea. I, 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 well, then maybe that's the political movement that you're looking for. Step one: picket Bunnings until Bunnings yeah. is all electric, and they what? won't sell you a two-stroke yeah. mower or, or a chainsaw <laughs> that runs on petrol anymore. I'm actually just pondering whether we should start the barbecues and jet skis party and the platform is everyone gets a free barbecue and jet ski and i think that would actually win the senate at the very least and and it's it's defensible as national infrastructure and i really am trying to change the dialogue of what people think is infrastructure because in the past we thought infrastructure was your coal mine or your snowy project but if we're going to have to have batteries yeah to store all of this sunlight Put them in the barbecue and not on the side of the house. I'm sold. I love it. Your rooftop, your barbecue, your jet ski are part of critical national infrastructure, right? So I think it's those types of ideas. But anyway, so this decade through 2030, Australia has the opportunity to be the first country to actually prove at scale that this stuff works. That means we'll solve the last... The last two metres problem. What's wrong with this story right now is the software to glue it all together and make the and make it balance and the distribution grid balance nicely. It doesn't quite yet exist 
in a way that makes it easy for someone to turn on their all electric house. But we do that this decade, we'll create these export companies that'll be showing the rest of the world how to do this. We'll be realizing those savings, that five or $6,000 saving per household that I told you by 2030. Incidentally, that's 40 to $45 billion a year we save. That's saving way more money that those households will then go and spend on all of their other consumer goods that'll create lots of positive effects in the economy than we do from all of our fossil fuel industry exports. That decade buys us enough time to figure out how to do the other stuff, how to embed all of our solar energy, all of our wind energy into products that we ship to the rest of the world. Those products will include not just shipping our um, iron filled dirt to South Korea and Japan to turn it into steel, but actually using our sunlight here to turn it into steel and then making a much bigger margin when we sell it. That's what Australia used to do. That's why Australia paid for my undergraduate degree. You know, it was paid for by BHP through a co-op program because they needed metallurgists to go and work in Australian industry to, to continue that export story. So we embed our solar and our wind in, in steel exports, aluminum exports, copper, all of the other metals I included, and also a little bit in hydrogen and ammonia. And that way we'll, we, you know, we, we, we have the best possible story we could go to Glasgow and tell the world. We'll do our domestic economy by 2030, and then we'll help all of you with all of these hard to decarbonize industries because we've got so much renewables that we'll be able to help you with your steel problem and your aluminum problem and your copper problem. Australia, it's like, it's a slam dunk. It's win, 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 and win all the way home, except for a few magnates who would like to scare you into thinking otherwise. Um, thank you so much, Saul. That was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I'm, I was already sold, but I'm even more sold. I, I now feel it's actually viable, which is, it's a nice feeling. Yeah. And just remember, as long as we, you know, as long as we install the right government or make this one wake up, we'll all save $5,000 a year, which, you know, Three years in, you'll be you'll get the jet ski. Convince Clive Palmer, so he pays for it. I, I, I just think that you think jet skis are more appealing. Than oh no, I hate jet skis. Are, I really, so? I really hate them. My father has. My father believes that jet skis should only be legal to ride one mile or more offshore, and so as long as you're prepared to swim it out there, you're. You're all good. But if they're electric, it might only be 100 meters because they're less noisy. <laughs> yes. And then, so, but you know. <laughs> Well, Charles, we made it uh, in a completely pre-recorded week with absolutely no effort from us for the entire week. Yes, and as you're listening to this, we, the, the Chaser team and all the interns and everyone, uh, are gathered around in a completely legal outside courtyard uh, having a drink and catching up for the first time face-to-face in several months. Yeah, so we're having a, a wonderful time, probably. Or it's very awkward because we've forgotten how to relate to one another as human beings. Either of those things might be true. But if you made it this far in the interview, why not tell us? Go and tweet at Chaser and tell us that you actually finished the Saw Griffith episode. Um, (laughs) We'll be so impressed that you made it this far. It will prove that you care about clean energy and the future of our planet. Good for you. And uh, and also go to the iTunes store and give us a five-star review and, yep. and tell us there. That, tell us uh, there as well, please. Uh, um, yeah. Brag that you made it this far. And the code word to prove that you really did mm. is... Banana. Banana. There you go. <laughs> Normal episodes of the Chaser Report resume on Monday. Not looking forward to that at all. Are you, Dom? 
Uh, yes, because my daughter will be in childcare after 15 weeks. So I'm up for any work. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Uh, gears from Rode Microphones, and we're part of the ACAST Crowder Network. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. See ya. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.